This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Nathan and Kieran Simpson. Together, Nathan and Kieran run a cropping and grazing enterprise within their family business at Gollan, 50Ks east of Dubbo. In this episode, the brothers share with us that they both contribute through defined roles, with Kieran managing the sheep enterprise, with Nathan looking after the cropping side of the business. Historically, these enterprises occupied about a 50-50 of land area, However, since the end of the last drought, they have implemented changes that have led to an increased focus on cropping. You'll hear Kieran share some of his experiences with sheep feedlotting, including a highly successful joining in confinement lots, while Nathan talks to us about his cropping rotation and the complexities that perennial pastures have played, including his experiences with variable rate nutrition and soil amelioration. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor, Rowan Leach, sat down with the Simpson Brothers for this chat. G'day listeners. Today I'm with Kieran and Nathan Simpson. We're at Golan, about 50 k's east of Dubbo. Fellas, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ro. Guys, talk about your family farm here at Bar. Yeah, so family farm. Uh, it's Bingen Bar here that Kieran owns now. Is uh, it's been the family since 1868, so it's 155 years this year. So that's something we're uh, yeah pretty proud of and trying to make sure that we continue that legacy. And um, yeah, part of what Kieran and I are trying to achieve is um, creating and allowing a business that uh, will have room for our children to come into the business if and when they choose to do so. Yeah. You've got a fair tribe of young ones, so this is it's definitely a long-term thing you're planning here, Kieran? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, we wanted to create opportunities for each and every single one of our, our children to come back into agriculture space, whichever way they choose fit. Yeah, so we need to farm today sustainably and successfully to make sure that, that happens in another 10 years' time. Kieran, can you just keep going with just a bit of a rundown of your enterprises here and what you do at Bingenbar? I'm in charge of the livestock enterprise and Nathan's in charge of the cropping enterprise and sort of heads up the whole general business. We're 30-70, livestock, 70% cropping at the moment. Traditionally, we have been 50-50. The drought sort of knocked a lot of the pastures around and then there hasn't been the money in the livestock for us since. So we will get back to a sort of a 50-50 sustainable stocking rate. And we were traditionally just always lamb traders. So we would buy off repetitive clients every year. We'll try to aim to. More than 50% of our livestock would have been bought off people we've been buying off for sort of 10 years, fattening those lambs, supplying into the meatworks in Tamworth. But yeah, we've only in the sort of last 12 months gone back to our own ewe base and breeding our own. It's been a pretty volatile market for trading hasn't it the past probably you could say five or six years 
It has, yeah, yeah. There's some opportunities there, but you just got to see them. <laughs> we, we missed them all, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, it has, yeah. It, it's been pretty tough for traders the last few years, I think. So there's probably been a bit more of a focus on cropping then. Yeah, it definitely has been, Rose. So coming, as Kieran said, coming out of the drought, like so, you know, the drought broke in February or whatever in 2020, a lot of our perennial pastures were buggered. So took all the perennial pastures out that were not in a sustainable sort of population density anymore. And yeah, we're still at that. So this year, there's a fair chunk we're sowing. There'll be 375 hectares of perennial pasture we're putting in this year. I think we've got another 160 to go in next year. And in that 2020, we planted 700 hectares of pasture, so. By the end of this year, I reckon we'll be probably at a 60%, like 60 to 40 land use uh, cropping to pasture. And so what sort of pastures are you planting? So it depends on soil type a bit. On our heavier red country, which is the majority of the place really, we've got a loosened clover phalaris mix that we put in. We do that in like a skip row setup. So we put our clover and phalaris down one row and then um, the loosen in the next. So there's a bit of mucking around with air seeder to set that up, but we found that works quite well. They're sort of, as little tiny seedlings that have no vigour, <laughs> they uh, don't compete against each other for space and sunlight and all the rest of it. So we've found, yeah, found that works quite well. Then on our light, shitty country, we've got, we've got a fair chunk of that too. We're sowing clovers now, basically, and then we'll go back in, in September, October and sow some digit, so premier digit, subtropical. Have you sown much digit before in the past? Not straight. Like not on not in this situation, like what we're going to do this year. No, it's always been in a blend with temperate species. How's it gone with the temperates? Yeah, not great. So you'd either have one or the other, basically. And it depends on soil type a lot. The digit loves acidic soil, basically. <laughs> so wherever that soil was, you had like quite a good digit stand and then the phalaris would take off in the better country. That's interesting. So when were you sowing? That mix, that shotgun mix of just because it's a one's a summer grower and one's a, a temperate grower. Yeah, obviously. that's right. Yeah. yeah, so that was generally all sown in the like in the temperate window. So you're talking, you know, April, May, and then your digit obviously just sat there until yeah, spring. Going on from soil types there. So what soil types do you have across the farm? Ranging from um, like basically gravel <laughs> to um, quite heavy red clay country, you know, um, and everywhere in between. So we've got some sort of sandy clay loam almost, you know, like it's, it's a mixture of the whole lot. But the majority of the place would be, I'd say, a clay loam, yeah, red clay loam. We've nearly got every single type of soil type though. There is, yeah, yeah. So the, our biggest challenge in the way of our cropping enterprise is we don't have a deep bucket. So we can't store moisture. We go from being bloody dry to uh, getting bogged pretty quick. <laughs> and therefore, we're reliant on spring rainfall, which is not reliable. So that's one of our biggest challenges in our cropping enterprise, yeah. I think the opportunity then presents itself in those situations where you've got shallow soils and you can't sort of store that much moisture over summer. Um, have you tried summer cropping or cover cropping to make improvements there? I haven't done any cover cropping stuff. We've put different species together, like a multi-species type, you know, setup, looking at, you know, either hay production or uh, just grazing to see what sort of benefits there are over and above a straight grazing wheat or whatever. But, yeah, we've done a fair bit of summer cropping opportunistically. Like only basically if we've got a full profile at the end of harvest with a forecast for rain, you know, so if you're going into like a Lanina summer, would do that, yeah. Our last one was the 2021 summer and, yeah, we grew, it was about 550 hectares, I reckon, among beans. Which it was actually a really handy crop, but it got completely decimated by mice. 
that mouse plague that was right in the heart of that and annihilated the crop unfortunately that's a real opportunity miss there because I, I do remember talking to you about that and it was as you said looking really good probably looked to yield a couple of ton of hectare it was it was yeah the better patches where we did succeed in keeping the mice out of it did do two ton to the hectare which is like a fantastic result for our part of the world yeah but yeah unfortunately the mice beat us and <laughs> we tried to keep them out too like we baited the whole lot twice like the first time and then we did a perimeter and then we baited the whole lot again and I can't remember what I did the fourth time I think I only did selected paddocks where it was there was less damage if that makes sense that was a bit of a kick in the guts, yeah. And we missed a really good opportunity there. <laughs> Conditions were perfect, just the mice came through and wiped her out there. So getting back to the livestock side of things, Kieran, you're running some ewes now? Yeah, yep. So we've got only a thousand merinos and a thousand composites. We're actually joining those to Aussie Whites because we're gonna go down the Aussie White line. We're just a bit hesitant to buy too many at ridiculous prices. That all seems to be straightening itself out now, which might create some more opportunities come next joining. But yeah, looking looking to get somewhere in the mark of five and a half to 6,000 ewes. And you're going to breed from those ones you've got and just strip the wool off them? Is that your plan? No, so I'm just using the Aussie White as a terminal at the moment. Yeah, I'll buy in more ewes in sort of December. Yeah, stripping the wool off them is going to take too long and you have too many bad genetic traits in there that you don't want in that type of animal. It's probably just better off paying sort of 40 or 50% above market for a better type of animal. So you've both got really defined roles like Kieran, you look after the livestock and Nathan, you look after the cropping. Is that conscious decision or you've both sort of just ended up in the positions that you like? A bit of both, I'd say. There was certainly, um, like, we obviously identified. So parents are still involved in the business too, like semi-retired, I guess, but they were quite good early on in the planning. So the succession story started, or like the conversation rather, started quite young. Like I was only 18 or 19, somewhere in that ballpark. So, And that's where, like, sort of uh, we had business coach from that point, like a corporate-style business plan and layout you know what I mean so that's where the role like clearly identified roles and responsibilities came into it but naturally like I've always liked burning diesel (laughs) and Kieran's probably like sheep a lot more than me mucking around you know what I mean so yeah it's sort of a bit of both I'd say yeah yeah so how does the decision making work in that sort of structure up until pretty recently we've it's just been by consensus so we have a uh have a meeting once a month or like we have a toolbox meeting every week and then a meeting once a month where we talk strategy basically and what's coming up and all the rest of it. And yeah, if there's any big decisions, well, we have a matrix. So, you know, you can make a decision in your enterprise up to a certain value, but once it exceeds, I think it's five grand or something, you need another person on board or whatever. And then if it's whatever the next one is, you need a consensus basically, yeah. If it's something out of the status quo, if he wants to buy uh, fertilizer, it's something totally different that we yeah, normally wouldn't have done and that's when we've got to yeah, work on that matrix. So you sort of touched briefly on succession there and we were having a pretty interesting conversation before about it, before I decided to pull out the microphones. How has your succession and planning for the future worked? It's something we probably worked on in 2018, was it, to really knuckle down when mum and dad wanted to sort of step out a bit more and we needed to sort out so we have another brother in between Nathan and I we needed to sort him out and set him up for his life opportunities and so that it wasn't something that came back on Nathan and I later in our life when we're trying to set up for our children so that one was really well done by another business coach we had at the time and we all just sat in a room and discussed what we wanted and 
what we saw out of the business and yeah, came to an agreement quite easily and comfortably. And it's still the main role that we're working on today is to tick those boxes on that agreement we came up with in 2018. So would you say that your succession's sorted and you're finished with that? Not 100%, but when it comes to um, our middle brother in between Nathan and I, I think that is definitely sorted. Parents aren't fully sorted, but they're a long way down the track to being fully sorted. They're reluctant to sell country and we're not in a financial position to buy a country so it's not something that can be sorted right now anyway but it's pretty clear what the track is i think everyone's pretty comfortable with where the track's heading it's on document so it takes away a lot of the arguments the key i think with and what mum and dad did really well when we were quite young was to start that conversation and um sort of setting expectations then so there was just take eliminates the green greedy eyed monster basically coming into the equation which was bloody good that's how i think we were able to reach a consensus like within a few bloody hours really like yeah there was no real stumbling blocks there but it is definitely a 100 percent like an evolving process you know like i don't think succession is ever done like it's something that is always ongoing and developing and all the rest of it you know but yeah that's really good. I think it's a shame that succession throws a few spanners in and, and can drive some farming families apart, but probably that first step is just talking about it and start working on it as soon as you can. It is a shame. There's so many good businesses go belly up because they get that part of it wrong, yeah. And I think it's about setting expectations early, like you're having the conversation with your kids when they're quite young, you know, yeah. Kieran, you run the livestock side of things. Can you explain to me your sheep feedlot system? So the sheep feedlot got put in to sort of secure ourselves originally in 2016 with just a few pens so that when we got into tight situations we had an opportunity to finish stock and then that changed pretty rapidly and quickly with going into the years of 17, 18 and 19, the drier years where we then went through with the DA and made it quite a productive tool for us. It's good, but you've got to know your numbers with feedlotting. Things change really quickly. And going forward, it's just something that we'll probably use opportunistically, not always keep full over those periods where you can, you can sort of gauge where the market should end up and um, you've got opportunities over a drier summer or something to buy cheaper stock. So you sort of mothballed it during that sort of really volatile period, sort of from 20 to start of the year, basically. But, and did you step back in at the start of this year? Uh, we did only with stock that we already had. Yeah, we f- stopped feedlotting in March of 2020 and then I put stock back in there of March this year. We finished a bit over 10,000 through there this year. Would have liked to have finished more, but the markets sort of collapsed pretty quickly. So I had to make tough decisions here a week ago. So how have you made the decisions basically when to sell or when to buy? It's all just off a spreadsheet I've got where you put in the values of your grain, you put in the value of the livestock, and then you put in your estimated value of the meat. Just working off that margin, basically, whether we can make money out of the animals or not. With the high prices of grain and livestock falling off a bit of a cliff the last six months, it's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So do you sort of envisage it helping with your breeding operation? For sure. So what I am working towards and going to put into place as of February next year is a three and two role. This year we joined in the feedlot. We joined 2,000 ewes in the feedlot and it was very successful. Some of them were in pretty poor condition and it was very successful 
to start with and then after the success of that, I think that that's something that we will use every joining. We'll join in there so we'll give our country a chance to recover. And using our type of feeding system, you can use pretty cheap proteins and fibre. So it's not a massive cost. It's not like you're feeding them two kilos of grain a day. Yeah, so it's definitely something that I've got budgeted. 40% of our lambs that we breed ourselves will be finished in the feedlot and every single joining will be joined in the feedlot. So what sort of conception rates were you, uh, did you get out of it? So I've got some old merinos there that they scanned in 154% and then of what did scan in was 165%. Lamb down at 165%? No, they didn't lamb down. So they, when you took the dry portion out of it, it was 165% of using lamb. They're lambing next week. So I'd see how we go there. The, another mob that I did lamb down only in the last month they scanned in 165% and they lambed down another 145%. So it was pretty pretty impressive, I think, for stock that were actually bought in as um, scanning lamb with all singles. So I think that's nearly one of those things that uh, every animal has the genetics. Well, not every animal, but just locking them up and stopping them from walking and giving them the opportunity of a constant food of the exact same type. So I've got a nice steady room and pH is good. It's a bit of a paradise for a ram, isn't it? Mouthful of feed in one hand and 200 ewes in front of him. It is, it is. Quite funny um, with a couple of rams in there, you don't see them fighting, they're, they're always just working. <laughs> That's... I've just got a good visual on that <laughs> and we'll probably leave that there. I reckon the, the greatest success that you had there, Kieran, was um, like you joined the, in the feedlot there but there was at 1.4% like the, the ratio rams to use like that was – and you achieved that result. It's bloody phenomenal. Just goes to show them not walking around as much and, yeah, access to clean, fresh water all the time. You don't need to put rams in at 4% to get good results. And then I guess by using less rams you can afford to – pay more for them and use the best genetics available. Absolutely, yeah. I totally, totally agree with that, yeah. And so have you also using electronic tags? So we are in the use. We were in the lambs, but I haven't been using any of the data from the lambs. And so traditionally every lamb that went in the feedlot had an AID tag and we were sorting them and drafting them on their performance and taking out any shy feeders that basically just weren't putting on weight with the labour crunch that every industry's had, but it's affected us as well. Haven't had the time to do that. So to do that, you're looking at running them over on an auto drafter twice and a lot of the time putting the EID tag in the lamb because a lot of the lambs we buy don't have EID tags. So it was quite labour expensive. This time I used a dye in the feed and that proved to be yeah, pretty awesome I think. So instead of we used to draft them out on 14 days on weight gain, this time I just drafted them on four days onto what has actually eaten the food and they just had a blue muzzle and those animals didn't slip. So even at 14 days, if an animal's not eating, you have a massive loss in body condition. These animals went straight back, actually got an opportunity to go into grazing crops and they picked and they they were sold similar times as the animals that went in the feedlot because they didn't have that massive slip. There were some instances where you miss them where you don't get the EIDs, but it's something they'll probably use going forward to take out that massive labour problem. Yeah, that's a huge result, isn't it? Like just being able to identify those early early ones and get them out of the way and focus on the ones that are actually putting weight on. Yeah, it was really good. So it was no extra work to put it in the feed, basically just threw it in the total mix ration and um, 
<laughs> had to put a suit on because it was quite a solid dye that reacted with the moisture in your hands and skin. Didn't want to be looking like a Smurf, you reckon? No, even though I had gloves and a suit on, it still got through. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, 3,000 lambs, basically we drafted them. Um, we took 10% out, which was easy. They didn't have blue heads. And that, yeah, we did that in a bit under four hours. So it was, it was quite easy and simple. And how long does dye take to get it wear off? It would have been gone within two days. It wasn't very solid. Like it, you just noticed around the mouth that they were blue. Nathan, maybe we'll focus a bit more on the cropping now. Can you take me through your cropping rotation? So um, our cropping rotation generally consists of wheat, canola and barley and obviously a perennial pasture. So we're looking at, generally speaking, a seven-year rotation, starting and ending with canola and then going into yeah, a seven- to ten-year um, perennial pasture phase type of thing, yeah. So wheat, canola, barley, generally. Every now and then we do, like we've grown some linseed in the past and some safflowers, things like that to sort of, you know, take the pressure off the canola country a little bit. But, yeah, it's been <laughs> pretty hard to pass up sowing canola the last few years. That's been our best gross margin by a hell of a long way. So generally speaking, that's that's it, mate, yeah. It's been really worthwhile, hasn't it? It's really forged a bit of a a following in probably areas that it hasn't been traditionally used, hasn't it, canola? So, yeah, probably a lot of those other sort of transient crops like safflower or something have probably had it or linseed have, have found it a bit tough to get into the rotation? There's a lot, a hell of a lot um, north of, or even Gundy. We went up the Gold Coast on, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago and there's a lot of canola through there that you'd never generally see it, yeah. I think also the fact that there's a genuine dual purpose varieties now and people are, are getting really good grazing from it as well. So can you talk me through your setup on how you start your rotation? So that's something that we, we're planning sort of, you know, 12, 18 months in advance sort of thing. Generally speaking, there is, we do have a little bit of flexibility, like um, we can chop and change at the last minute if need be type thing. But generally speaking, the plan's set 12 or 18 months in advance. Yeah, just we sit down with the agro and uh, go over the pros and cons of doing X, Y, and Z. And as I said, it's generally a pretty fixed rotation anyway. So a lot of the work's done already, just a matter of uh, recording it <laughs> in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet. But in the way of the actual operation, since 2020, 21. So the last two years we've been full variable rate at our, for seed and our fertilizers and even our liquid system the last two years. So that's all on soil type. So we've mapped our paddocks to soil type, which is basically looking at combination of EC, like electrical conductivity, topography and elevation. So a combination of those three to come up with fixed zones in the paddock. So each paddock has three zones. Generally speaking, it's um, the highest yield potential gets the, you know, obviously the higher inputs and the higher seed rate and all the rest of it. And the lowest yield potential stuff's obviously backed off from that, yeah, by sort of, oh, it's about 10% per step roughly, yeah. I guess the other route to go down with variable rate is to go full soil testing and, and grid mapping. How come you've gone with this different version? Uh, so that's still a big part of it. You still go out and validate, you know, with through soil testing and zoning and that sort of stuff. So there's in each zone, in each paddock, we're doing five soil tests. So yeah, there's a total of 15 soil tests per paddock um, that we've gone and done. So that formulates the baseline of nutrition decisions, basically, you know, and or even lime and all the rest of it too going forward, obviously. But um, yeah, so it's a bit of a combination of both, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so that's great. So you're not just using spatial information, but your ground truthing as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you definitely need to validate what uh, that data is telling you, yeah. I believe you've also used some of that VR on your pasture country as well. Is that right? Yeah, we have. So we use some yeah, spatial uh, data from data farming up in Toowoomba to look at, it was country that was sown with perennial pasture in 2020. And we'll, I wanted to look at 
2016, 2020, and might have even been 2021. Three seasons there anyway with big springs. So we wanted to look at our, our high biomass areas compared to our low biomass areas. And I did actually spread on that. So we cut it into three zones, um, over 700 hectares of pasture we had to spread single super on. And we did spread on that composite map and then went back and tested afterward. So all of that country that year got cut for silage. It was a more a nutrient replacement uh, strategy more than anything else because obviously we're harvesting it off with the silage or fodder production. We did go back and test and it is quite amazing how even the phosphorus levels are now in, uh, in those zones, yeah. So are you finding cost savings at the moment with your VR? We're not sort of uh, trying to save money. It's more about getting a bigger return on your investment, yeah. Great answer. Love that. Well, it depends on your area, I suppose. You know, a bit further west and it's a bit more, uh, you know, semi-arid or unreliable, I guess. Yeah, it's probably a, a valid sort of, you know, way to go about it. But yeah, certainly in our case, it's um, we're just putting the input where we should, in theory, get a, yeah, see a greater return. You using any other technology, cool tech in your cropping system? Not really, mate. Like there's, uh, in software-wise, there's some pretty cool stuff. So up until last year really i had no real way of validating like different on-farm trials that we were doing like with you know different species and cultivars and fertilizer rates and all the rest of that sort of stuff our agro now is using a software platform it's tied up there with sst's like some up there somehow but i think it might be like an add-on to it where you're looking at a um, variable rate basically gross margin map all of our equipment's John Deere stuff, so it uh, you know, all goes through to my John Deere cloud after each task, and it's pulling that information out, with, and that obviously has our fertilizer rates and chemical rates and all that sort of stuff. So that all gets processed, uh, has a cost attributed to that input, obviously, including diesel labor, the whole lot. And then, yeah, we're looking at yield maps, obviously, to what those areas produced and not necessarily looking at you know, where the best areas or whatever, it's we're looking at the gross margin. So where the greatest return was on that. And that's been a terrific tool to validate what, we, what decisions we're making in season. So, you know, there's sometimes there you're making calls, or even do it now too, where you're not 100% sure whether it's the right decision or not, like you think it is because of, you know, X, Y, Z conditions, but that uh, tool to use at the end of the season before you're planning for the next season is a great way to validate those decisions and whether it was wrong or right. There's definitely stuff we, we stuffed up on last year. There was probably, well, 150, 200 hectares that we sowed that we shouldn't have. Like it just got too bloody wet all year and then you couldn't get on and spray, you know, and that it was all a dead loss. We, we would have been much better off keeping the seed in the silo and the fertiliser. But, yeah, so that's one of those sorts of decisions that went against us, obviously. But there was other decisions there that we made in crop that were bloody terrific, like, and they had a great result, you know. Yeah, so it's really important, I think, to particularly when you're doing VR because there is so many complexities that come into, you know, a given result. It's not necessarily just your agronomic practices and if your inputs and that sort of stuff. There's it's paddock history and it's bloody, there's this and that and all the rest of them. So um, it's it definitely important to go uh, and validate those decisions and to basically keep you on track and making sure you're doing the right thing. It's just another tool and toolkit, isn't it? Like it's, 100%, yeah. yeah. You're still using probably a fair bit of gut decisions as well. So it's important to probably have both of them going forward. Kieran, any other uh, flash bits of tech that you're using in the livestock side of your business? No, not really at the moment. Uh, we'll do going forward just to process our twinners. And at the moment, we're not doing too much, but within a couple of years, we'll start to focus on a, a self-replacing flock and we'll start to use a bit of pedigree matchmaker there to make sure that we're choosing the um, maidens from the highest profitable ewe, the ewe that's performing consistently and rearing that lamb every time. 
Fellas, I've had an absolute whale of a time today, but just before I go, I'd like to ask of my guests, what do you think is the big issue in Aussie ag at the moment? Labor shortage for sure. We are so ridiculously short on skilled labor in particular, but even guys, just laborers. Like we're at the situation there now where our truck driver finished up with us last month and we can't find another trucker, you know, so we're going we're gonna to sell that truck. Like it's to that point where it's impacting our business pretty hard, yeah. Kieran? My biggest one I think is we're all – price takers and we accept a price at a time. We can market our commodity to a certain point, but then we have our cash flow issues that come into it. I think the biggest low hanging fruit as an industry going forward is to um, sort of get away from that if we can and start to have a bit more consistency around what our prices are going to be going forward. Cracking answers, fellas. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast today. No worries, Ro. Thanks for the invite, mate. It's been good. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.